One of the dads in my Boy Scout troop was a master auto mechanic. He made a lot of money fixing high-end Mercedes, and one time he agreed to teach the automotive maintenance merit badge. So there we were, a bunch of Boy Scouts, just trying to get credit for the merit badge so we could go on to the next thing, learn how to change the oil, and he wanted to teach us how to work. He said you could learn all you need to know about somebody by watching how they push a broom. So the lesson that he taught that stuck with me all of these years later was how he was able to do a 12-hour job in eight hours, just as well as the 12-hour guy. The key, he explained, was perfect organization. Cleaning the bay before he got started and knowing where every single tool was. He showed us his toolbox. He had what seemed at the time thousands of tools for teenage me. Maybe it was thousands of tools. And he said he knew where every tool was and he could find them with his eyes closed. He didn't even have to look to grab the next tool for the job. When the next guy is looking for a tool, I'm already off to the next car, he said. And uh, that's why he made over $100,000 fixing cars. And before you're tempted to judge, like, oh, he's just a car mechanic. That's just a blue collar job. Do you make that kind of money writing books? (laughs) If not... Maybe there's a lesson to learn from the auto mechanics. If you want to make auto mechanic kind of money, perhaps you need to use auto mechanic level organization. The other thing that he did was he had a process. He knew exactly what to do for each project, and he followed that process very clearly. So how do you stay organized? How do you create processes that help you write faster and better? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Sumstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. Today, we are joined by a special guest who knows what she is talking about. She's written over 150 books and sold more than 5 million copies. And she's agreed to share her secrets of how she creates processes and how she stays organized. Angela Hunt, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. It's so good to be back. It's always fun. Yes, we love having you here, and you're now officially a friend of the show, which is very exciting. We're going to soon add a special section to the website, actually, for friends of the show, where you can click on their name and see all the interviews that they've done. So stay oh, cool. tuned. That's Yeah, that's in the works. Uh, So now I should say, when I first said the word organization at the top of the episode, I could figuratively hear the moans of thousands of authors. So why do (laughs) authors struggle with organization? I think it's because they think that writing is some mystical experience where you have to be tuned into the great muse and the stratosphere and and that it's a thing that sort of impulsively happens and i've got news for you if you sit around waiting for the muse or waiting to get inspired you're going to be waiting a long time the way i do it is i take a topic my editor says we need a book on this and i say okay and i think about the best way to write it the best characters to use the best type the best genre and then i sit down and work out an outline i plan i schedule it i plan when and where and how i'm going to write it and then i sit down and start writing and i may not know exactly where i'm going when i start but by the time i've written several drafts and we'll talk about all those today i'm sure I finish up with a book that I'm proud of and that 
is usually published. So that's how it works. So let's go through the details and what's the process that you follow. All right. The first thing, say you have a vague twinkling of an idea in your head and you want to see, okay, is this idea strong enough to write a novel or a short story about? And the first thing to do is run it through the WAGS, W-A-G-S. I got this from the late Gary Provo. He was a great writer and he, I learned this and I've never been able to forget it. And so your story idea needs to meet these four criteria. The first one, W stands for world. A good story idea carries the reader to a different world. And I don't mean that literally as in takes them to Saturn. I mean, it takes them to a place that is different for your ordinary reader. So I've written books that took the reader to the top of the rainforest canopy, to the embalming room of a funeral home. But something that's different, nobody wants to read a book about someone with the same ordinary life that the reader has. So W, a different world. A, an active character. She has to get up and start moving. G, she has to have a plan, a goal, to reach a goal. And stakes, the stakes must be high. Always ask yourself this question. If my character does not achieve the goal, what happens? And if your answer is, well, life just goes back to the way it was before, then the stakes aren't high enough. So when you're thinking about your story idea, run it through WAGs, those four criteria. And if, if she's not active enough, if she, her goal's not associated with really high stakes, you need to um, tweak it. And you may be wondering, how is this a time-saving tool? And it's like, well, if you don't have these wags figured out at the beginning and you spend hours and hours writing hundreds of pages when the goal isn't good or the stakes aren't good or the world isn't good, going back and fixing that takes so much time. When if you just figured it out at the beginning, you don't have to do it over again. There's a saying in construction that there's never time to do it right, but always time to do it twice. <laughs> so... And that's so often with writing, right? Like we'll write a whole terrible rough draft to avoid doing just a few hours of planning. You know, two or three days of planning can save you from months of drafting in the wrong direction. And so spending time to think through this. This isn't plotting out your story beat for beat, right? Figuring out the world and the goal and the stakes and the active protagonist. This is far cry from full on outlining, but even just this little bit of work can save you a massive amount of time. So what are some mistakes that you see authors make when they're trying to get organized and put their processes into place? They don't think about the genre. Know what the genres are and know what they need to include. For instance, romance publishers want a hero and a heroine and they must get together at the end. You cannot kill off the hero and leave the uh, heroine a widow. This is actually a really common question I get from authors because they think it's a marketing question. They say, what category does my book fit in? And I never know how to answer this because I know their book is doomed when they ask that question because they're trying to apply the category to the book rather than writing the book to fit the category. And no author wants to hear your book is doomed because you wrote it the wrong way. <laughs> you wrote it backwards. 
you didn't write it with the reader in mind. You didn't write it with love for your reader, knowing what expectations your reader came because of the genre. You wrote the book you wanted to write because it was a story that was on your heart. And it's really hard to sell that. It's not going to be a commercial success. And so I guess I say generally on this podcast, you have to write the book for the reader. And a lot of that means adapting to the genre. Because when someone buys a romance, they're buying a book with certain expectations. They're expecting that the couple gets together at the end. And that's a really simple example, but it's the same for all genres. Every genre, every micro genre have similar expectations. What those expectations are are different to the genres, but they all have something. There's something that they're looking for. If they're buying a how-to book, they need to know how to by the end of the book. If they don't know how to actually overcome the problem or fix the thing at the end of the book, they're not going to be happy. Exactly. And like, know the the distinctions of the genres, and you might have to do some reading or some research to figure this out. For instance, under action-adventure, you have mysteries and you have thrillers, but they are two completely different things. A mystery is a whodunit. The reader reads along with the detective. It's usually told by a third-person character, but the reader and the detective are getting the clues at the same time, and it's a race to see who solves the puzzle first, the reader or the detective, and it's usually the detective. And a, th- a thriller is a bad guy and a good guy, and the bad guy is doing bad things, and the good guy is trying to stop him, and that, oh, it's a race against time until they finally have a confrontation. So these may seem like fine differences that you've never thought about, but they're very important. So before you sit down to write a novel, Find the genre this will fit in and then make sure that your story fits the conventions of that genre. So what are some other mistakes that you see authors make? They feel overcome. I've had so many people when they find out I'm a full-time writer, they say, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, but the thought of it, I just get paralyzed because it's such a big project. And yes, it is a big project. But how do you eat a cow one bite at a time. This is what I do. I used to write a full-size novel in three months. Now I'm older, I have grandchildren, and I want to play with them. So now I take five months. But I sit down and I print out a blank paper calendar of those five months. I mark through, put an X through every Saturday, because I believe in taking a day of rest. I do no work on Saturday ever, period. And then I also mark through other days that I know I'm going to have a full-time thing going on. And then I count the number of available days that I can work. And so then I take on that paper calendar and each available day I write down. For draft one, I put write one through 3,000 words. Now, Keep in mind that I'm a professional writer and this is my day job. If you are starting out and you're only, you only have two hours a day to work on your book, you may not be able to do 3,000 words. So pencil in whatever your goal for each day is until you have a first draft. And then you can't do the same for drafts two through five because by then you'll have pages You'll have a printed copy of a first draft, a rough draft, and the minute you start typing on the computer, the pagination is going to change. So you need to print out a copy of that rough draft, 
and then say, okay, I'm going to edit pages one through 10. And I generally do, because I'm full-time, about 20 pages on that second draft. You're editing 20 pages a day? Uh-huh. And the second draft is harder. All right, I may as well talk about my drafting process now. If it works for you, great. If it, if it gives you hives, we'll move on to something else in a minute. <laughs> but draft one to me is about getting the story down, the bones of the story. I use a plot skeleton which gives me lots of room to discover things along the way, but yet it sets up who I'm writing about, what we're doing, and how it's going to end. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and all the major bases are covered. So I write, and my first drafts are only about 45,000 words. They're very bare. And then my second draft fills in all the gaps, the things I didn't know I would need until I finished the first draft. Sometimes I don't really have a clear idea of what this story is exactly about until I finish the first draft. The second draft finishes off the first draft. So this is not Stephen King's, the second draft equals the first draft minus 10%. The second draft is adding 10, 20,000 words, sounds like, to the manuscript. Exactly, exactly. In fact, I so believe in keeping going that if I run into a detail in that first draft that I don't know, let's say it's a historical, and I say the king sat down and ate a platter of, oh my goodness, what would they eat in the 14th century? I just put brackets, find out what he would eat in bracket <laughs> and keep going. And then draft number two is about filling in all the brackets and adding the details and doing the detailed research that I need. So I want to stop you here because this is a really important productivity principle called clustering, where you cluster like tasks together. Once you've washed the first dish, washing the second dish is a lot easier, right? So you want to do all the dishes all at once. <laughs> you don't want to do five or six dishes and then go to something else and do five or six more dishes. So putting that brackets, this is a common technique. Angela Hunt did not invent this. This is like what professional writers do. <laughs> they use brackets to cluster the research so that when they want to get into research zone mode, they could just do find and replace or just find in their document, find some brackets. And they're like, oh, that's right. I needed to research this. They go and they research that. And then they go on to the next one. They've got all their windows and screens for research. Their mind is in a research spot. It's hard to change gears from researching to creating. I find that as soon as I start researching, my creativity dries up <laughs> completely. Oh, yeah. And so I have to guard that creative time and separate it from the researching time. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Sol Stein pointed out that you should take a couple of days between the first and second draft to do what he calls triage. You know what triage is in the hospital. It's where they see who's come in with the worst problem, the one who's, you know, about to die, and they take care of that guy first. So you do triage. So I usually look for my brackets and fill in those research details, bracketing, and do those because then in draft two, I can slip back and engage the creative part of my brain to finish out the story to write draft two. Draft three is about adding mood music sensory details. I believe in having at least three details, senses in each scene, something to see. Well, that one's easy because we say he came into the room. That's a visual thing, but something to hear, something to taste, something to feel, something to smell. 
adding those details are what make the reader say, oh my goodness, I felt like I was right there. And it's those little tiny details that the wind, the weather, the sounds, the pop of the gravel under the buggy wheels, those kinds of things. And then draft four is more about self-editing. So this next draft, the self-editing draft, this is the one where you're finally working on commas and usage. So up to this point, we're not exactly. really worrying about spelling and, and proper usage. It's it, These are all developmental edits. And so for those of you wondering, these are internal developmental edits, and then you start doing copy edits. So a self-copy edit. So walk us through your self-copy edit process. Right. So the fourth draft for me, I do two things. One is when I really focus on getting rid of my weasel words, which are words that are overused generally, and specific words that I have a tendency to overuse. And another thing I do in the fourth draft, which is very important, is I listen to the manuscript. Use the accessibility features on your computer to do this. Because when a reader is reading the words, they hear it in their mind. And so the written word is vastly different from the spoken word. And so I listen to the piece and I can tell if something jars me. And it's things like, she stared at him as he went down the stairs. Ugh, because the word stare, even though it's two separate words spelled two different ways, it clings, it clunks on my ear. And the rhythm of the words, if there's a long sentence or if the dialogue doesn't sound right, my ear will hear it where my eye will ignore it. And also listening to it picks up times when you've dropped a little word, forgotten an a the or an an, you know, that kind of thing. It's really, really helpful. If your book can sound good when read to you by Siri or Katana, <laughs> then you know it's getting ready to be ready. <laughs> if it... It doesn't sound good when Siri reads it, then it still needs some more work. You know, that's really true because the more robotic the voice, the actually the better it is. Because a lot of us, we hear the emotion when we read it on the screen, but the emotion has to be in the words, not in our heads. So it's very good to have your computer read it to you. And I have some people say, well, I read it out loud myself. And that might work, but your eye is still going to glance over the errors that you've been glancing over all along. So it's better to have the computer read it to you. I think you'll find. And this is another productivity tool because you could, with enough time, perhaps find most of the errors. Although, really, you'll still always need an editor. But it's faster. Assuming that you're a fluent English speaker, you're going to hear very quickly those errors. They're going to jump right out at you. Yes. And the literal way I do it is I usually print out a copy I highlight it, tell the computer to read it. I turn my back on the computer and I sit there with that printed copy and pen in hand. And because she reads pretty quickly, I just mark the errors on the page. And then when she's finished that scene or that chapter, I go back in and then edit them in the on the manuscript so that they're corrected. Okay, so you're clustering these activities too. You're clustering the detection of the errors and you're separating that from the fixing of the errors. I like that. Oh, it's the only way it will work, in my opinion, because if you kept stopping the narrator, the computer reader, you would lose the flow of the the chapter or the scene or whatever it is. So it's much easier just to go through a, a chapter, a scene. It also helps the day go faster, I think. <laughs> Breaking it up too much is, makes it just too too tedious. So what are some time management tips to help authors write better, faster? Well, the first one 
used to be really revolutionary a few years ago, but I don't think it is anymore. And I have, it's, you don't have to answer the phone. It seems like years ago when we all had landlines only, people thought they had to answer it. It was like a social obligation. But, and I learned rather quickly, no, it is not. You don't have to. There's a lot of other compulsive phone activities, I think, that have supplanted answering the phone. And so now it's notifications from social media or other things. So really, your phone still is your biggest obstacle to productivity. In fact, it's probably a bigger obstacle than it was. It's just an obstacle in a different way. And there is a reason why Apple and its most recent operating system update added a bunch of do not disturb features because they're realizing they're having a negative impact on the GDP of the planet because of how distracting these phones are. And so they're trying to reduce the damage that they've done to the global economy by making it easier to make yourself not interruptible or here are the five people who can interrupt me and everyone else cannot right there's a lot more tools built into your phone and i'm sure android either already had those features or they'll steal them quickly right every good feature in one or the other gets stolen by the other so use your phones do not disturb features research how they work and how you can adapt it so that you feel comfortable turning it on more often That is right. Just remember, the world is not going to end if you do not stop and look at, you know, who said something on Facebook or responded to your post. And if the world is ending, wouldn't you rather spend it writing your book than watching it end? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. It'll probably end on live TV. Number two, my second tip is learn to say no. I love Gone with the Wind is one of my favorite books. And I love when Scarlett, she had a little speech she composed for when men proposed to her. Apparently, it happened all the time. And she would say, oh, my dear, I am not unaware of the honor you have bestowed upon me by asking me to become your wife. So memorize a little speech like, oh, I am not unaware of the honor you've bestowed upon me by asking (laughs) me to bake cookies. But I'm afraid I just can't this weekend. You know, so say no. Say yes when you can and no when you're supposed to be working. I struggle with saying no. And what I find that helps for me is that deep down, I have to believe that I'm not really saying no. I'm saying yes to something that's more important. There you go. And it got really clear once my wife and I started having all of these babies, right? So I get invited to speak at conferences all the time. And lately, I've been saying no to all of the conferences. (laughs) But I'm not really saying no to the conference. I'm saying yes to spending time with my wife and babies because I've got a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn, and I don't want to leave my wife with those three. It's overwhelming with the two of us. And so when I say no, what I'm really saying is yes to my family because I have to realize that when I say yes to that conference, I'm also saying no to my family. And so you demonstrate what your true priorities are by what you say yes to and what you say no to. Yes. My next point was tame the television. I mean, even though we have 500 channels or more, there's really not that much good stuff on. (laughs) So I've learned that if it's not really something I really wanted to watch, just keep it off. And then I have more time to myself. Another one is capture stolen moments. When you are at the doctor's office, even when you're sitting in the car waiting, when you're in the carpool line, when you're anywhere, pull out your Kindle or I carry an iPad almost everywhere I go because in when I'm waiting in the doctor's office, I can make notes. 
I can check my calendar. I can put little lists and reminders for me to do other things. You can listen to podcasts like the Novel Marketing Podcast available where all good podcasts are available. There you go. So anytime you find yourself just sitting with nothing to do, you can always, if you have something to, even a book, sometimes I'll have a book with me, especially if it's a writing book and I'll get an idea and I always have a pen and I jot notes in those empty back pages and all that sort of thing. Now it is, don't ever feel that time sitting and thinking is wasted time because it really, to write a good novel, you're going to spend a lot of time sitting and thinking or showering. I always find that I get the best ideas in the shower. I haven't figured that one out yet, but it really works. Another tip is have a particular place to write. You will save time if you don't have to set up your desk, your computer, your dictionary, put on your music, everything that you need to get in the flow. That's why I have a special office and pretty much all I do in there is write. Going back to that car mechanic example I shared at the beginning, in many ways, other than the like life lessons that he taught, which were very valuable, the actual changing of a tire lesson was not very helpful because changing a tire in a mechanic shop is so easy. It took us two minutes because all the tools are right there. They're raising mm. the car is really easy. You know, I helped my brother. He had a flat tire on his truck and it's 30 degrees out and the wind is blowing and it's dark and we're like trying to find flashlights and the pieces are not put in the right spot. And it was a big, like 45 minute project when in the mechanic shop, it was a three minute project. And that's what we're talking about. You create this kind of zone that protects you from distractions where everything you need is right there. So you're not spending lots of time wasted trying to get things set up. And a lot of it's just closing all the other applications, right? Close Chrome, close Firefox, and just open up your writing document and get those distractions out of the way. The better and more productive you are at doing that, the more you'll be able to write each day. Brilliant. Another principle that I have found very sobering is this one. Your life consists of a measure of finite moments. So when you are wasting time, you are literally wasting your life. Just think about that. So when I find myself not purposely thinking, but just, you know, wasting time, frittering time away, I think, oh my goodness, this is my life. And the thing I've noticed the older I get is that time is the most precious thing in the world to me. I've become disciplined in that if I need to leave the house, I try to get all my chores and all the places I need to go and do them all in one morning because otherwise it just takes too much time with the going and the coming and the, you know, driving back and forth. It's just illogical to me and it's a waste of life. Another tip is harness the power of the carrot. You are the donkey, but you also control the carrot. I have a friend who would not get up to go to the bathroom until she had finished a scene. And I'm not sure that's very good for your kidneys, but it certainly was motivational. So, you know, figure out what you need to motivate yourself and use that. It might have made her books a little bit more fast-paced, right? Get to the next scene a little bit faster. <laughs> no unnecessary <laughs> words in that chapter. <laughs> and finally, do remember this. Multitasking is a myth. When we think we are multitasking, doing two things at once, we are actually 
switch tasking. We're shifting our attention from this thing to that thing and then back again. And I love this quote. In 1740, Lord Chesterfield offered the following advice to his son, quote, there is time enough for everything in the course of the day if you do but one thing at once, but there is not enough time in the year if you will do two things at a time. So when you're writing, focus on the writing, and then you'll get it done, and then you can get up and do the rest of your life. And this is particularly true when you're drafting or doing something creative, because when you're multitasking, you're not just switching back and forth. You're also storing in your head some of the information to go back to that other task. And that is room of creativity, of mental power that could be applied to your writing. If you're like, I need to be extra brilliant. Guess what? You can be just completely get everything else out of your head, right? If you're trying to write and you keep thinking about how you need to get eggs at the store, write down on a piece of paper, get eggs at the store and trust that that piece of paper will remember so that now that part of your brain that every two sentences reminding you exit the store now can be used for creativity. We're sharing lots of um, pithy aphorisms here, but the shortest pencil has a longer memory than the sharpest mind. <laughs> so try to capture all the stuff bubbling in your head on a piece of paper and then discipline yourself to just write. And you'll be shocked how much faster you write when you do that and how better the writing is because you're actually smarter in a real way because you have more CPU cycles to dedicate to your writing rather than to remembering all the things that you need to do tomorrow. Well, I'd like to just say one piece of advice is don't publish too quickly. And today I see far too many beginning writers publishing too quickly before they have thought things through, before they have really honed their craft, before they have really even learned what the genres are and where their book fits. So I will leave you with this scientific experiment. In his book, The Genius in All of Us, David Schenck cites Stanford psychologist Walter Mischel's study of a particular group of four-year-olds. In the 1970s, he gathered them together and offered the children a choice. They could have one marshmallow immediately or wait a little while for two marshmallows. And here are the results. One third of the kids immediately took the single marshmallow. One third waited a few minutes, but then gave in and settled for the single marshmallow. One third patiently waited 15 minutes for two marshmallows. After 14 years, Mitchell checked in with the same subjects again. He compared the SAT scores of the original non-waiting group to the waiting group and found the latter scored an average of 210 points higher. Those with that early capacity for self-discipline and delayed gratification had gone on to much higher academic success. They were also rated as much better able to cope with social and personal problems. Don't rush to publication. You're only going to get one marshmallow if you do that. But if you take the time to plan, to learn, to practice, 
then you will get the two marshmallows and you'll have a much better publishing experience. I couldn't agree more. In fact, that's the ninth commandment of book marketing. Thou shalt not publish thy first book first. Because <laughs> it is such a common mistake. And the first book that you write is meant to teach you how to write a book. The second book you write maybe is the one for public consumption. I'll just say that the first book I ever tried to write stayed in a drawer for years until I finally threw it out. So that is very <laughs> sound advice, Thomas. And now you've written 150 books and sold 5 million copies. Our sponsor today is the Tax and Business Guide for Authors. And we were talking about getting organized. And one area that can be a big stressor is your taxes. And in this course, I talk with my dad, who's a CPA, who's been working with authors for over 35 years. And we talk about everything you need to know about taxes as an author. 19 tax deductions authors can take advantage of, whether or not the IRS sees you as a professional author who can take tax deductions as a business or as a hobbyist, right? There's, there's a way that you can know how and when to form the LLC, how to reduce your likelihood of getting audited, and so much more. If you'd like to find out more about that course, you can find it at authortaxtips.com. And patrons of the Novel Marketing Podcast save 50% on the cost of the course. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is John Sugar, author of The Exorcism of Frosty the Snowman. and the frozen north, children link hands in a ritual circle and sing a song they never learned to summon a primordial enemy they never knew existed. Frosty is just a fairy tale, they say. They are wrong. So thank you, John, for being a sponsor of the podcast. And if you would like to become a patron of the podcast, there's a link, authormedia.com slash patron. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to support the show, you can. Just share this episode with one author you think would find it helpful. Angela Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Oh, always my pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about Angela Hunt and to find her book, Plans and Processes, that go into even more detail. It's a book that will help you get your book written with writing lessons from the front. You can find that at AngelaHuntBooks.com. We'll also have a link both to Angela's website and to her book, Plans and Processes, to get your book written. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. Blog post is by Shauna Lettler. And the producer was Lloyd Christine. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. And to find that blog post version, as well as links to everything we mentioned, including to Angela Hunt's book on productivity and processes, you can find that at authormedia.com slash 311. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.